Acts chapter 9. The sermon text starts uh, in actually the middle of verse 19. So it's kind of uh, whoever broke up the verses um, after the scriptures were written kind of broke it up a little strange. So um, we're going to start in the second half of verse 19, Acts 9. 19. For those of you just joining us for the first time, I've been preaching through the book of Acts. That's what we typically do, is just work through different books of the Bible, because we believe all the Bible is important. And uh, the book of Acts covers the events that took place after the ascension of Jesus back to heaven. So Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose again uh, for the sins of the world. He ascended back to heaven, and Acts then covers the next 35 years or so of history as the original apostles went out to tell people about Jesus and what Jesus had, had just done. And we're now, uh, Acts chapter 9, we'll read in a, in a little bit, starting in verse 19. Let's go ahead and pray as we go here. Father, we thank you for every opportunity to open your word. Father, we just believe this was breathed out by you, and it's for our good. And we believe, Father, that um, uh, in this word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we can actually begin to connect with you, the living God, that we can come to the written word and we can connect with the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, as we open your word today, we just pray for the blessing of your spirit. That, Father, we would not just stop at the black words on a white page, but by your spirit, you would somehow help us to, to connect with you, to commune with you. Pray, Father, you'd help us to know you better, not just in our minds, but deep in our hearts. May we know you. May we know your love. May we know Jesus. Father, this is only something that you can do by the power of your spirit. So we just ask, Lord, will you bless us today? Father, send your spirit across this room, in our hearts, open our hearts, that we might see Christ, to see, to see you in, in the scriptures. So Lord, help us, we pray. We commit it to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, at the start of Acts chapter 9, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, we just hit a very pivotal point in the book of Acts. We saw the conversion or the salvation of a man named Saul, uh, who will become one of the most influential Christians in, in all of history. Saul will ultimately write half of the New Testament that you have uh, in your laps. There are billions of people who have read it. Saul will take the gospel message of Christ to the Gentile world. Up until this point in the book of Acts, the gospel message of Christ has really just gone primarily to Jews and to non-Jews. But through this man Saul, the the gospel will now explode into the non-Jewish Gentile world. And and this man Saul will take the gospel to the Gentiles. He was just converted and a miraculous uh, change of heart in this man Saul early in the book of Acts th- th- this guy was just a monster he was training to be a Pharisee he was persecuting violently the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ but at the start of Acts 9 Jesus just sovereignly appeared to Saul on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians Jesus dropped Saul to his knees he saw his sin and three days later 
in Damascus then, a Christian named Ananias prayed for Saul and he was converted, became a new follower of Christ. And what we see now here in Acts 9, in in this passage, is we begin to see the start of Saul's new life as a follower of, of Christ. Luke gives us here now this little snapshot of Saul's early Christian life. Saul is growing here as a disciple. He's maturing. He's, he's, he's being transformed into this powerful Christian leader. This man here in this text is now changing from Saul to the Apostle Paul. Let's go ahead and and read it, starting in the middle of verse 19. For some days, Saul was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name of Christ? And, and has he not come here for this purpose to bring them, the followers of Christ, bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Amen. So we get here this little snapshot now of Paul's early Christian life or Saul, I think still at this point, Saul Saul growing now as a disciple, growing into this Christian leader, he's being changed now from Saul to Paul. And as we look at this story here today, I think we can learn some things here about the growth of every disciple and the growth of every Christian leader. Now, when we look at Saul, you've you got to understand Saul was unique in, in many ways. He was, he was a chosen instrument of Christ to, ter- to carry the name of Christ to the Gentile world, uh, to write half the New Testament, uh, this chosen instrument. So in some respects, Saul's growth was different than the growth of other disciples and the growth of other Christian leaders. But I do think we can see here some general factors that are necessary for the growth of every disciple, necessary for the growth of every Christian leader. I think, I think we can see four things here in Saul's life, four things necessary for his growth as a disciple, four things necessary for the growth of every disciple, every Christian leader. And the four factors I think we can see here, and we'll go ahead and put them on the screen. 
They are the factors that are necessary for the growth of any disciple. They are time, team, trouble, and transition. We'll just walk through and I'll show you where I think we can find these here. First factor we see with Saul here uh, that I believe is necessary for the growth of every disciple or Christian leader is time. The, the, the growth of a disciple, a follower of Christ, it just takes time. This past spring, when we left uh, for vacation for a couple of weeks, the, the maple tree in our yard dropped its fun little helicopter seeds, and the conditions must have been just right this year because we returned from vacation, and there were literally thousands of little maple seedlings growing in our yard. And if we would have left those things growing, they would have become huge maple trees after years of growth. Real growth of any kind. It just takes time. Babies take years to make adults. Apple trees take years to produce apples. Grapes take years to make a fine wine. And it takes years to produce a mature disciple, a Christian leader. And we see that with Saul. It is very difficult to see her at first glance, but this snapshot here of Saul's early Christian life, this passage here takes place over several years. Luke has given us right there a very condensed version of Saul's early life. Luke here, like all Bible writers, he's just highlighting here the critical parts of the story most significant for his book, the book of Acts. So it's so important to catch that here, I think, with the apostle or with with Saul, because it's easy to look at Saul and think, man, this guy right off the bat, super Christian, super leader, this guy, Saul, he's not like me in, in any way. But the events in this passage, they didn't all happen just days after his conversion, but this actually took place over several years. Let me piece it together for you. If you look again at verse 19, Saul was just converted, rode to Damascus, and Luke then says, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Now, we don't know how long those some days were there in Damascus. Most commentators think that it was a few months that he was there initially in Damascus. And it seems then, when you read this passage, it seems that Saul immediately then left for Jerusalem. The Jews plot to kill him in Damascus, and he escapes through the wall to Jerusalem, just maybe days or so after his conversion. But again, Luke has given us a condensed version of Saul's story. We know from other parts of the Bible that Saul, between Damascus and Jerusalem here, he actually spent time in Arabia. A couple years, in fact, in Arabia. Saul will later say it himself. Later, Saul will say this about his life, Galatians 1.15. He says, But when God had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in Damascus, 
in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Peter and remained with him 15 days. So somewhere in the middle of this passage, and I think you can find it in there, there's a, there's a line where Luke, who wrote this book, said, now after many days, and I think that was after his stay in Arabia, but somewhere in the middle of this passage, Saul was in Arabia. Now I have a map here of Saul's journeys. He started at the beginning of Acts 9. As a non-Christian, he started down south there in Jerusalem. He then traveled north up to Damascus. He was going up there to persecute Christians. He was converted on his way. He then spent some initial days there in Damascus. And then he traveled to the east into Arabia, most likely for a couple of years before returning to Damascus. And his return to Damascus is probably when the Jews plotted to kill him. And he then, at least Three years after his conversion returned to Jerusalem. And the point is simple. Don't look at Saul and think that he was some super Christian right off the bat. He went from lost to to mature Christian leader instantly. He goes from zero to 60 in four seconds flat. It, It didn't work like that for Saul. Saul's growth took time, including a long trip to the Arabian desert. And here's the thing, nobody knows what he did there. Nobody, nobody knows. He, he, he probably spent some time alone, I would imagine. His world had just been rocked. His life turned upside down. Everything he thought he knew turned out to be false. Jesus, he thought he was dead, a false imposter. Jesus is actually alive, the, 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 the true Messiah. And man, Saul probably just needed some time alone to, to process, to come to grips with what just happened. But also, I would imagine Saul spent time with, with other Christians there in Arabia, maybe more mature Christians who were teaching him. We don't know. I think it's very, very possible. And Jesus probably used that extended time in Arabia to train Saul. Uh, Jesus connecting the dots for Saul. Jesus showing Saul that all those Old Testament scriptures he had studied as a Pharisee, well, they all ultimately pointed to Christ. I think in Arabia, Jesus was training Saul to preach Christ to both Jews and Gentiles. So he is there, you know, we don't know how long, but this Damascus, Arabia thing for several years before he gets to Jerusalem. And there's something else here I want you to see with Saul. At the end of this passage here, when, when the Christians down in Jerusalem, at the end of the passage, well, they, they, they send Saul away off to, to Tarsus to, to protect him, well, Saul drops off the map in the book of Acts. The next time he's mentioned is Acts 11, 
verse 25, when Barnabas then goes to Tarsus to find Saul. And you could look at that and think, well, that's only a couple pages in Acts, Acts 9 to Acts 11, maybe just a few months that Saul's gone at that time. But once again, Luke has condensed things. You know how much time actually passes after this passage here before Saul reappears in Acts 11? Seven to eight years. Seven to eight years. And during those years, the Bible says very little about Saul. This man just virtually gone. Hidden. For almost a decade. And and you know when Saul will finally write his first letter that shows up in the New Testament? Some 14 years after his conversion. 14 years for Saul. Saul's development, his growth as a disciple, a Christian leader, took time. And that will be the case for you. You turn to Christ in in faith today. You you begin to follow Christ and and your growth. It will just take time. And, And here's the thing. You can't cheat the process. You just got to put in the time, as, as we might say. There's, there's a part of that as, as a follower of Christ. It, it's, it just takes time. And, and, and not just days, but months, but, but years to, to grow, to, to maturity. So don't get discouraged. If it seems that your growth is taking some time, if it seems like it's two steps backwards and one, two steps forward, one step backward at, at times. Real growth of any kind takes time, whether it's maple trees or babies or a disciple. Kent Hughes says this. He says, We must remember that preparation for service does not happen overnight. It takes time to brew good coffee and to grow to maturity. The Lord is never in a hurry. But, but, but let me tell you what that doesn't mean, that it takes a while to grow as a disciple. It, it doesn't mean that you just sit around as a Christian until you mature. And I think a lot of Christians kind of think like that. I just, I just have to get to this level of maturity and then I'll start to minister to people. But that's not how it works. The, the second you become a Christian, God has now called you to minister. God has called you as a Christian. God has called every Christian, as Ephesians 4 says, to do the work of the ministry. So the second you come into the kingdom through faith in Christ, you're called to minister for Christ. And man, we see it with Saul. His growth will take years, but his ministry starts instantly. You look again at verse 19. For some days, right after his conversion, he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately... He proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying he is the son of God. Instantly preaching Christ in, 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 in the Jewish synagogues there in Damascus. And this will be his lifetime pattern. Every town Saul will go to now in the future, he'll preach first to the Jews in the synagogues and they'll kick him out. And then he'll go preach to the Gentiles outside of the synagogues. And it starts instantly for Paul right here. He doesn't wait 14 years to start fulfilling his God-given calling as a minister of Christ. He starts preaching instantly. And I wonder what Saul's first sermons were like. 
as a Christian. It's easy to look and think, oh, Saul preached the best sermons ever as a new Christian. Really? Tim Keller says that as a preacher, your first 200 sermons will stink. So get them out of the way fast. <laughs> Thankfully, I preached a lot of my, 200, my first 200 sermons in prison ministry, East Texas, thankfully preaching to a captive audience <laughs> that could not escape my preaching, and I'm sure they wanted to at times. I think back to some of my first sermons, and I just cringe. They were terrible, bordering at times on pure heresy. And <laughs> you think Saul might have needed a little sharpening as a gospel preacher? Man, I do. And I think That's one thing that's happening here. While he's spending his time growing, he's being sharpened. You look at verse 21 again. And all in the synagogues there in Damascus who heard Saul preaching initially in Damascus, they were amazed, shocked, because this former persecutor of Christ is now preaching Christ. And they say, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon the name of Christ, and has he not come here for this purpose to bring Christians bound before the chief priests? They're just shocked that Saul was suddenly preaching Christ. And verse 22, look at it. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. And, and the idea there is that Saul began instantly to preach Christ, but over time, he became stronger, more capable in his skill, in his abilities uh, as, as a witness for Christ, became more effective as an apologist, a defender of Christ. As Saul ministered, he increased in strength. He got better. He got sharper. And that's a great lesson for all disciples today. Do not wait, Christian, 14 years before you start to minister. Start today. Just look around you today. Just listen to the needs that are around you. Look for the pain around you and move toward that pain. That's what Jesus always did. He was always moving toward pain. See if you can speak Christ into that pain somehow. Minister somehow. Serve those people. And as you minister, as you use your God-given gifts, you will increase in strength. More capable, more effective, sharper in your ministry. But just know that your growth as a disciple, a Christian leader, it will just take time. It will take time. That's one factor with Saul here. We can see, I think, a factor necessary for his growth, a factor necessary for the growth of all disciples and Christian leaders. And a second factor here, also necessary for your growth as a disciple, team or community. Growth as a Christian, it doesn't happen for you in isolation from other believers, but together with other believers. And, and, and I think we can see that with Saul, and it's important to catch it with Saul, because I think it's easy to look at Saul in the Bible, and you just kind of think, man, this guy was a loner. 
he was a maverick. He just kind of went off and did whatever he wanted to do. And if you wanted to follow him, you could. If not, he'd get angry and leave you behind or something like that. It's easy to look at him and think he was, he was this loner. That's simply not true. From Saul's conversion through the, his entire Christian life, he surrounded himself with Christian community. Saul sought Christian community. You could see it here initially if you look at verse 19, right after his conversion. For some days Saul was with the disciples at Damascus. This guy's in community with other disciples from the start. Men like Ananias who had prayed for him when he was converted and other Christians around Saul early on. Saul most likely receiving early Christian instruction from these other disciples. You know, before Jesus ascended to heaven, he told his early disciples, Matthew 28, hey, you you guys go out and make new disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And these disciples in Damascus, they have now made a disciple out of a man named Saul. They baptized him in the previous passage. And don't you know, These disciples are now teaching Saul to observe all that Jesus had commanded. New believers just need special nurture like infants, need need milk, need need care, need need comfort, need need training. And that included Saul. He, He was not birthed into the kingdom as this adult who needed no care, comfort, milk, or training. That's simply not true. You see that, then Saul becomes some superhuman so unlike you. And he wasn't. Yeah, had a special calling, unlike you, unlike me. But he wasn't a superhuman. He came into the kingdom and was nourished in the kingdom like every disciple was. He's in community at the very start there in Damascus. And when Saul later travels to Jerusalem, first thing he does is he seeks out Christian community. If you look at verse 26. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. You know, these guys down in Jerusalem, the men, the women, the children, they probably heard a couple years ago that Saul had been converted, but he disappeared. He dropped off the map into Arabia. He suddenly shows up there in Jerusalem And they're a little skittish now. Is this guy legit a true disciple? But verse 27, Barnabas, we met back in Acts 4, very generous believer, gave a property, uh, the, the proceeds to the church. He's also a gutsy believer. Barnabas took Saul, previous monster, and brought him to the apostles and declared to them, how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So Saul went in and out among them, the disciples, the apostles at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Barnabas believes that Saul is converted, and Barnabas takes Saul, Luke says. And the Greek there has the sense of Barnabas taking Saul under his wing, protecting Saul. Barnabas, son of encouragement, protecting Saul, 
kind of defending Saul with the apostles speaking up for Saul to the original apostles. Do you, have you ever had anybody kind of take you under their wing like that? Protect you, defend you, speak up for you? It feels good, doesn't it? My, my older brother was, was great at kind of taking me under his wing. Someone would be picking on me when I was a kid, and he was, he was always there to kind of defend, protect. So helpful for me most of the time, except for when a kid in high school started to fight me. And my brother, not wanting me to get hurt, bear-hugged me, pinning my arms to my side, saying to me, no, Brett, don't fight. And the other kid then went right over my brother's shoulder and punched me in the nose. And, and thanks, brother, for taking me under your wings. Not so helpful on that occasion, but otherwise pretty helpful to have someone take you under their, their wings like Barnabas does for Saul. Have you ever pictured Saul as needing someone to take him under their wing? Well, Barnabas did it for Saul. And the other apostles and the disciples, they're now convinced and they allow Saul to join them. And verse 28 says that Saul now went in and out among these disciples in Jerusalem, preaching Christ boldly. Saul is in community again there in Jerusalem. And later, he just keeps going in his life. You can just see this pattern of Saul in community, seeking out community as a missionary. He doesn't go alone. He travels with Barnabas and John Mark and, and, and Silas and Saul then staying for years on his missionary trips in places like Ephesus and Corinth, staying in community with other believers there, even later in jail, multiple times asking other believers to visit, to be with him. Saul was not a Lone Ranger Christian. He was not a maverick, go-it-alone type of Christian. He was deeply committed to community. You can see it in his entire life. One of the ways that Saul grew, that he was molded, that he was transformed into the Apostle Paul. It's a factor necessary for the growth of every single believer, for the growth of every single Christian leader. You will not grow much at all as an isolated, independent Christian, just you and your personal Jesus. You grow in a team. That's how God has designed it. Christians doing life together, iron sharpening iron. Christians rubbing at times. That's what iron does with iron. It produces some friction at times. But through that friction, Christians are then being sharpened. You heard the saying, it takes a village to raise a child. Well, it takes a village to raise a disciple, to, to raise a Christian leader. And that's the second factor here, I believe, we can see with Saul in his entire life that helped him to grow. It's a necessary factor for the growth of every disciple, every leader is, is a team or community. And a third factor here, also necessary for the growth of every disciple, it's trouble. It's trials, difficulties. You know, from the start of Saul's life, this guy's in trouble. He's just hit with trouble from, from, from the get-go. We see it in both Damascus and Jerusalem here. If you look again at verse 23, when many days had passed, and Saul 
I think this is when he's come back from Arabia, when many days had passed. Saul now back in Damascus after Arabia. The Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. It had to be a pretty exhilarating ride for Saul to be lowered in this basket. I think it was Winston Churchill who once said, it is exhilarating to be shot at and not killed. And I think that just kind of happened to Saul. He's getting shot at, plotted to kill him, and he escapes. Exhilarating ride for him. And, 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 and he's out. You know, these Christians are basically just smuggling Saul through the small hole in, in the city wall. As I was reflecting back on my high school days and this fight that I was in and my brother not protecting me, uh, a, a movie, I thought of a movie from my high school days called Lady Hawk. The, the guards go to the castle prison looking for their prisoner, Matthew Broderick, but he's escaped through a hole in the floor. And the other prisoner there in the cell, insane guy, he says to the guards, the mouse, he left our house. No mouse today, he's run away to ease the pain. He's down the drain. And Saul has basically just gone down the drain in Damascus. He later resurfaced in Jerusalem, and he's just hit with trouble again. Joins the disciples, and then look at verse 29. And Saul spoke then and disputed against the Hellenists. He was disputing against the Greek-speaking, Greek-background Jews there in Jerusalem. But they were now seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. The Christians in Damascus, the Christians now in Jerusalem, they just keep smuggling Saul out, man. He's just hit with all these trials. They're smuggling him out. They now send him a long way away to Tarsus, Saul's hometown, where Saul will now remain for seven or eight years, virtually hidden until Acts chapter 11. And Saul's troubles just increase. He'll be persecuted. He'll be beaten, be whipped, be stoned. Constant plots to kill him. Ultimately suffering more than any other apostle. And you know, you think about Saul and his, his sufferings. You know, some of Saul's sufferings were unique. They, 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 they were just for Saul. They were part of his calling. When, when, when Saul was converted on his way to Damascus, Jesus said this to Ananias in Acts 9.16. If you put that on the screen, Jesus said to Ananias, I will show Saul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So some of Saul's suffering is just part of his calling, taking the gospel to the Gentiles. But you know, some of Saul's sufferings, it wasn't all that unique. It was just the God-given path that every disciple must walk. A path of trouble, a path of trials and difficulties and, and suffering. Afflicted, as Saul will say in 2 Corinthians 7, afflicted at every turn. Fighting without and fear within. Saul talking about himself about a fear within his heart. It's just the life of every disciple to some degree. The Christian road is a road of trouble. The, the hymn we love, Amazing 
grace says this, through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Grace, thank God, will ultimately lead every single true disciple home to heaven. But listen, grace will lead you home through many, many, many dangers, toils, and snares. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it like this. He said, suffering then is the badge of true discipleship. It's just the God-ordained path for every Christian. Yes, Saul in an ultimate sense, but also for every Christian. And, and, and why? Why all the trouble? Do you know one of the reasons why we're hit with trouble as disciples is because that's how you grow. That's how you grow. We grow the most as followers of Christ, not in comfort. That's not when we grow the most. We, we grow the most as followers of Christ when life hurts. We grow the most through, 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 through troubles, through distress, through pain, through afflictions. The, the winter looks like it absolutely kills the tree. But the winter actually just drives the sap into the roots, causing the tree to grow deeper. So in the spring, the tree can grow taller. And, and that's trouble in the Christian life. Ultimately, it makes you grow deeper. You know, grief has a way of enlarging your soul. Sadness and sorrow and hurts and pains. They, 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 they just do. They, they, they make you grow deeper in order that you might grow taller and stronger. Suffering, pain, afflictions, troubles. They give you what would be called gravitas. A gravity in your life. A depth in your life. A weight. A maturity as a Christian. A solid oak tree in your yard. That tree is produced by many storms. And without those storms, that tree is not as strong as it is today. Saul later says this in Romans 5.3. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope or James 1 2 count it all joy or like Romans rejoice count it all joy my brothers my sisters when you meet trials of various kinds why for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness knowing 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 that that those Things, those hard things, difficult things are what produce in us those good things like endurance and steadfastness and character and hope. Knowing that, then when we're hit by trials and sufferings, we're called to rejoice. Why? Because God is growing you up. But so many Christians quote those verses, have memorized those verses backwards and forwards, and then they walk out their door and they're hit with the trial, and what do they do? Grumble. Grumble, 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 grumble. Why is my life not comfortable? Why is my life not peaceful right now? Because God is growing you up. He loves you. 
And that is how we grow. So may God help you in your pain and your suffering and your affliction somehow to rejoice. Turn your heart up knowing that it is those difficulties, those troubles that produce in, in the Christian life. Trouble makes you grow. That's the third factor with Saul's growth. A factor necessary for the growth of Saul and every other disciple and every Christian leader. Trouble. It just makes us grow. And one final thing here, something just so important for the growth of every disciple is what I would call transition. If you want to be a mature disciple, if you want to be a mature Christian leader, over time in your Christian life, You must go through a painful transition from pride to humility, from power to weakness, from a willful strength to a humble submission. You know what really needs to happen in your Christian life to be mature? You need to be broken by a very gracious God who loves you and will not allow you to continue to operate the way you operated in the past. You need to be broken. Saul needed to be broken. You you think about this man, Saul. Just before his conversion on the way to Damascus to persecute Christians, Saul was operating in great human pride. He was operating in human power. A strong will. Willful strength. Saul says himself that he had zeal, but it was a fleshly human zeal. He had accomplished everything up to that point in his life through his own human strength. My will be done. And Saul could function well like that in this fallen world because that's how this fallen world operates. That's how you get ahead in this fallen world. Saul rose to the top like that. Pharisee of Pharisees. Cream of of the crop. Accomplishing everything through human pride and powerful power and willful strength. But the problem is that God's kingdom, the Christian life, it does not work like that. It just does not work work like that. God's kingdom is diametrically opposed to the fallen kingdom of this world. It's the exact opposite. Things are not accomplished in God's kingdom through human pride, but through humility. Things are not accomplished in the kingdom of God through human power, but through weakness. Things are not accomplished in the kingdom of God through a a willful strength, but through a willing submission. Not my will, but thy will. 
be done. And man, when you, when, when, when I, when anybody comes into God's kingdom, put our faith in Christ and a new follower of Christ, well, those old ways of doing things that we've practiced since birth, they must now be broken in us. You, you have to learn a whole new way of life, of functioning. And here's the thing, that doesn't happen overnight. But over time, Saul here, when Christ initially dropped him to his knees on the road to Damascus, I'm sure there was some breaking there that Saul was humbled to some degree. He was now tasting his own weakness, his will being broken initially. But I do not believe for a second that that process was complete in Saul at this time. No, Saul had lived his entire life the other way. Accomplishing everything through human pride, power, will, fleshly zeal, strength, and that does not change overnight. I don't think it did with Saul, but over time. That's the only way it can happen for any disciple. The second you come to faith in Christ, Jesus is now in your heart. Praise God for that. And that old way of operating is deep in your bones. That's how you've learned to function as a human being. Through pride and power and your own willful strength and your own fleshly zeal. That's what you've learned. Christ is in your heart, but don't believe for a second that that way of operating has been removed completely from your bones. It hasn't. You know what what a lot of people do when they become Christians? I think we all do to some degree. We just bring that old way of operating into our Christianity. And now we just try to accomplish things for God, for for Christ. We we try to minister now for Christ. We try to make disciples for Christ. Try to do great things now for Christ. We try to win the world for Christ through human pride and power, will, fleshly zeal, strength, Jesus in my heart, but that old way of operating still deep in my bones. Martin Luther talked about a theology of glory and a theology of the cross. He said that many professing Christians, they get lost in their own theology of glory. Trying to do great things for God through human pride, power, a willful strength. But true Christianity is the theology of the cross. Things accomplished through humility. And weakness, a willing submission, not, not my will, but thy will be done. And that transition for professing Christians from a theology of their own glory to a theology of the cross, sometimes I don't think it ever happens. I think some Christians, some professing Christians go their entire life trying to accomplish things through human pride and power and, and, and willful strength. And when that transition does happen for Christians, it's, it's not a one-time breaking and it's done, but I think an ongoing progressive breaking over time. And then in this passage here with Saul, and man, this long seven to eight years after this, this passage, before he shows up again in Acts 11, I think Saul was going through this breaking. I think he was going through this transition 
Saul now learning over time to, to minister for Christ, make disciples, start churches, not through human pride, power, willful strength, but through humility, weakness, willing submission. I think we see a great picture here of this transition Saul was now probably going through when he escapes Damascus through a tiny hole in a wall. And he's lowered in a basket, literally a hamper, like your clothes hamper at home. Can you just see the mighty Saul escaping Damascus through a tiny hole in the wall, being lowered in a dirty clothes hamper, crouching down so he's not killed? Man, and what a contrast to the way Saul approached Damascus initially as a persecutor of Christ, a non-Christian. And I think we get a small picture there of what Saul was probably going through in his life. The painful, progressive, breaking transition from proud persecutor to humble persecuted. From from powerful hunter to weak hunted. To from willful strength to willful submission. You, You know what was happening to Saul, I think, during this long season of his life? He was changing from Saul to Paul. From this point on in his life, he will call himself Paul. And do you know what the name Paul or Paulos means? It came from the Roman Empire in in his days. You know what it means? Small. Humble. Saul was going through the long and painful transition from big Saul to small Paul, learning how to operate differently. Alan Redpath says this, when God wants us to do an impossible task, God takes an impossible man and crushes him. And God was now, over time, I believe, crushing Saul, teaching him a different way of life, something every disciple must learn. If you want to grow as a disciple, if you want to become a mature Christian leader, you must be broken. There's no other way. You have to make that painful transition from Saul to Paul. Because it's in and through weakness, humility, brokenness, that Christ works most powerfully. This man Saul, later as the Apostle Paul, he'll say this, 2 Corinthians 9.9, Therefore, he says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Christ working most powerfully on this earth, not through human power, but through weakness. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those, are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the small. Or as Jesus said in Matthew 18, 4, whoever becomes like a child is greatest in the kingdom. And isn't that just what we see in the life of Christ himself? He didn't come to this earth and conquer through pride, power, willful strength but through humility through weakness humble submission not my will but thy will be done letting go surrender 
losing death like a child in order that you through faith in Him you might be forgiven. But if you now want to be mature as His follower, a mature leader in His church, that's the path. You must be broken. The strong eye in you progressively crushed over time. Painful. And it's one of the hardest lessons of my life. And the day I learn it, I'll die and go to heaven because I'll be done. Learning how to pastor in humility, in weakness, in brokenness, in willing submission to the Father. The hardest lessons I'm still learning to this day. But it has to happen for you to grow and be like Christ. So that's the making of a disciple, I think, in this passage. It takes time. Slow growth. It takes a team. You've got to be committed to community with other believers. It involves trouble, so get ready. And it involves a painful transition. A breaking of the old you. Not an easy path, but for those who walk that path, the rewards are infinite. Jesus said, if you lose your life for my sake in the Gospels, you find your life. It's on that difficult road where where, we're with Christ. He said, if anyone desires to follow me, if anyone desires to be with me, to be close to me, to taste me, to touch me, to know me, let him pick up his cross and follow me. It's through death that you get close to Christ and receive those infinite rewards. May God give you grace. May God give all of us grace to trust in and follow Christ on this road to maturity. Father, we we bless your name. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your help. We open your word. We just see again, Lord, that the road of discipleship is not easy. All comfort, all pleasure, all fun. We thank you for the joyful moments we have along the road with friends and and family. We thank you for the joy we have in Christ along the road. But we just don't want to lie and, and, and make anyone, including ourselves, believe that it's an easy road. And we just need your grace, Lord. We want to run from it. And, and the answer is, Lord, will you just show us again the beauties of Christ and grip our hearts with the beauties of Christ? And that's the thing that helps us to drop all this other stuff and, and follow Christ. So, Lord, open our eyes that we might see, that we might, that we might again take steps down this road. Open our eyes, Lord God, that when troubles come, we don't ultimately, we don't instantly grumble, but rejoice. Open our eyes, Lord God, not to grow impatient with the time it takes. Open our eyes, Lord God, that we don't live our lives as independent, isolated Christians. Open our eyes, Lord God. Help us to make this transition, Lord God, that we might be the ones squeezing through a hole in the wall, no longer people who persecute others, but people who receive persecution in the name of Christ. People who no longer hunt others, but we are hunted at times in the name of Christ. Not a willful strength, but willful submission. Will you help us, Lord God? That is not easy for us. Thank you, Lord. Show us Christ, and we'll head down that road. 
and it'll be by the power of your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, amen.